0: Now welcome back to our weekly podcast. Uh, This week we're talking to Professor Mark Pritchard about gastric NETs. Uh, It was actually his recent systematic review in APT which caught my eye. Now Mark has a simple plea. Try to understand what you're dealing with in the stomach and work within your neurokind MBT to reduce the risk of pitfalls. As good advice, because I realized that I'm one of those who unthinkably have been removing 10mm gastric entities, perhaps without quite understanding what I was dealing with and what the potential issues were. Now, the conversation with Mark is full of useful hints and tips, but also details and caveats. We have Mark on the line now. Mark, thank you for taking some time out to speak to us about gastric entities. You're working in Liverpool.
1: I'm Professor of Gastroenterology in Liverpool. So this is one of the European Neuroendocrine Tumour Society centres of excellence. There's several now in the UK uh, and we work jointly between the Royal Liverpool and Intree Hospital and we have a coordinated service and, a, and an MDT. And that's one of the important things here actually is to have an MDT with all the components because you need surgeons, uh, you need upper GI surgeons, you need hepatobiliary surgeons, you need Um, lower GI surgeons, you need radiologists, you need nuclear medicine physicians, you need endocrinologists, you need oncologists, you need them all. A number of things that you need to do to characterize a net. We'll talk about the stomach ones in a minute, but for any net anywhere, you need to establish certain things. So you need to know the grade of the tumor, how fast the cells are growing. You need to know the stage of the tumor, obviously, whether it's metastasized to lymph nodes or more distantly you need to know its functional status so is it secreting hormones the vast majority of the gastric ones don't um, but lots of the other ones so the you know the small bowel nets can secrete sort of serotonin called carcinoid syndrome and then there are the Zollinger-Ellison syndrome etc from the pancreatic gastrinomas all those sort of things so you need to know this sp- um, functional status uh, and you also need to know whether they're sporadic or inherited so some uh, and of relevance to the gastric net field, the gastrinomas that sometimes cause the type 2 gastric nets um, are often associated with multiple endocrine neoplasia type one men ME-N1. So you need to also think about that. Um, so part of the treatment of a net, to do it properly, you've got to fully characterise it before you start because a, a small localised type 1 grade 1 gastric net has a very, very different outlook altogether from a metastatic grade 3 pancreatic net. You know, They're completely different diseases. They've got the same, it's the same type of tumour, but very different behaviour and very different requirements. Determining the characteristics of the tumour is particularly important. And that's even more so in the stomach, to be honest. So as you know, there are three types of gastric net. So the majority that you see and come across are type one. So they account for probably, well, the the literature says 80%. I think it's probably actually more than that now because, you know, endoscopes have got better, endoscopists have got better, and they're recognising these small little polyps in the stomach, which in the past everybody ignored or just couldn't see because the technology wasn't good enough. So type one, I think, are now probably 90% of, of the total. And they, as you know, are associated with autoimmune atrophic gastritis and hypergastronemia and lack of stomach acid production. Just so So almost never due to Helicobacter, it is almost uh, always autoimmune. These patients, if they don't have it at the time of presentation, will eventually develop pernicious anemia because they have they end up with no parietal cells at all and therefore no acid and no intrinsic factor so they don't absorb vitamin b12 and they get pernicious anemia so it's a it's usually an autoimmune atrophic gastritis so one of the take home messages for endoscopists is when you see these things as well as taking biopsies from the polyps themselves, you must take biopsies from the corpus mucosa. There may well be, and in many of these patients, there is florid atrophic gastritis. The stomach is smooth. You can see the blood vessels. It's a barn door macroscopic diagnosis. But nonetheless, you need to take biopsies to A, make sure whether there is atrophic gastritis, but also, if the pathologists do the same immunohistochemical stains as they do on the tumours, so they do chromogranin and synaptophysin stains typically, they will see ECL cell hyperplasia. So ECL cells are enterochromaffin like cells, so they're histamine-secreting cells. In, the, in these patients, they have a background feel change throughout the stomach. So you'll see linear and nodular ECL cell hyperplasia in the unaffected, mucosa, so not just in the tumors everywhere. And that's basically gives you the diagnosis. So taking biopsies from the corpus is important. The other thing you can do is to take biopsies from the antrum and in some labs in ours, but not every pathology lab will do it, if you stain those for gastrin, you will see G cell hyperplasia because what happens is that the stomach's not able to make acid and as a result the G cells which are in the antrum of the stomach make a whole load of gastrin. To promote the growth of the ECL cells. It's a it's
2: so, a it's a proliferative hormone, isn't
1: it? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, the other thing to do in all of these patients is to measure the gastrin levels in the blood, a fasting gastrin blood test. And in the type one tumours, it's usually very high indeed, uh, because they've got almost. In, in many cases, almost complete achlorhydria. If you suck out the gastric juice, which I sometimes do if there's a debate about what's going on. So just put a little polyp trap on. And before you start doing anything, just suck out a little bit of gastric juice. It, there's usually a pool there in the in the body. Just suck a little bit out and put a, um, some pH paper on it to measure the pH. It's often pH 7. Right. That's a good tip. It's a little tip. and It's very straightforward to do. The most difficult thing is usually actually finding some paper to measure the pH in the, in the gastro unit. That's usually my biggest challenge, but it sometimes can be a, a useful thing to do.
2: Often, though, the, these patients are on a PPI for absolutely no reason yeah, whatsoever. No. They're uh,
1: a so, so, So um, <laughs> that's what causes some difficulty sometimes. Often people on PPIs will have hypergastronemia. The level of gastrin in the blood will be high. It's not usually as high as if as if they've got atrophic gastritis, but it can be elevated. So this is why it's a little bit tricky. If you're really unsure about what's going on, you may need to stop the PPI and take the, pick the pH again or the gastrin level again. But I would just be have one word of caution there. Don't do that without thinking, because if you've got a type two gastric net, So these are the ones that are associated with a gastrinoma and MEN1. And the gastrin levels will be high again. The gastrin levels will be high. But if they're on a PPI, that may basically be controlling them. And I've had a couple of patients where people have taken them off a PPI in that setting and they have presented with a jejunal perforation. From a duodenal ulcer. From a duodenal or even further down in the early jejunum. Unrecognised ulcer. So, if if you've got an atrophic gastritis, you're pretty convinced this this is a type one gastric net. There's no evidence of a gastrinoma on a scan of the pancreas. Then stopping the PPI is pretty safe. But I wouldn't do it without giving it some thought, because if you do do it and it's a type two gastric net with a gastrinoma, you could end up with a disaster. But that so, should be a solitary net, shouldn't it? You, no, you... they can have a very similar appearance. They're often multiple small polyps again. But unlike type 1, where you'll have a smooth atrophic mucosa, you may also you may have enlarged gastric folds, typical of hypergastronemia. You may even see some ulceration or something of that sort. You might, if you're really lucky, even see some duodenal polyps, which are the gastroenteromists because they they Gastrinomas in MEN1 are usually submucosal duodenal lesions. Gastronomas, about three quarters, 75-80% are sporadic. They're usually in the pancreas. The ones associated with MEN1 can be located in this thing called the gastronoma triangle. So, they occasionally are in the pancreas, but more frequently they're in the second part of the duodenum. Often very small, can be very difficult to identify even with EUS and Uh, cross-sectional imaging, Um, occasionally you can see them but they can be difficult to identify sometimes. So that's the type 2 but in them the polyps, the gastric nets can appear very similar to type 1. The other type, the type 3, are the ones that are most aggressive because now with endoscopy we pick them up incidentally, you know, when they're five or 10 millimetres in size, but in the past it was said that these are usually more than two centimetres solitary lesions. That's not actually now the case. So we've been looking at our patients recently, we've been doing a, we've got an audit from five centres of excellence throughout the UK and Europe, and the majority of our tumours are actually less than two centimetres, and half of them are under a centimetre so not presenting with symptoms usually but found incidentally when the patient's having a scope for something else and but, then they have the polyps removed endoscopically then if they're small yeah so 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 they need before you embark on them they need a proper workup so biopsy initially to tell you that it's a net rather than something else but then you need to work up you need to establish that it's type 3 And in order to do that you need to make sure that biopsies from the unaffected mucosa are entirely normal there's no background ECL cell hyperplasia you need to make sure that the gastrin is normal and you need to make sure that there are none of these other associated conditions pernicious anemia or MEN1 or whatever if you're then convinced that it's type 3 you should fully stage it so the type 1 probably don't need staging but type 3 even if they're small, they at least need a CT scan um, to make sure there are no lymph node or distant metastases. And you need to look closely at the grade of the tumor. So, grade is done by the key 67 proliferative index. You can do that on the biopsy zone. So. Yeah. So, you, a, any pathologist who diagnoses a net should do a key 67 stain. So, the key 67 positive cells are the cells that are proliferating. And what they need to do is count those as a percentage of all the tumour cells. There are three grades of neuroendocrine tumour. So in grade one, less than 3% of the cells are proliferating. In grade two, between three and 20% are proliferating. And in grade three, more than 20% are proliferating. The majority of the tumours that we see in the stomach, the nets in the stomach, are grade one or low grade two. So key 67s up to about 10%. Under a centimetre is questionable how, how much you need to do these things, but certainly anything over a centimetre, I would throw the book at them and do all these things before you embark on treatment. So if they need a CT scan, they may well need an EUS, they probably need a gallium scan to see if there is any lymph node metastasis or any hint of that before you embark. Because as you say, if they're submucosal they can be difficult to get out completely and often the pathologist will give you the report you know we, we cannot categorically say whether you've removed it or not because there is tumour at the diathermy margin but for nets that's actually quite a common pathological report so the ENETS guidelines and traditional practice has been that you do a big operation on anybody with a type 3 gastric net irrespective of size or grade partial or total. And um, we've got a few patients, who, you know, young patients who have had total gastrectomies for this. But the question is, is that actually required or could we be doing less? So I think it's, it's looking more and more that patients who've got sub-centimeter grade one or low grade two lesions probably can be managed safely with endoscopic resection. And if you can do an R0 resection in those, that's probably enough. You need to follow them up closely and make sure there's no local recurrence, especially if it's a slow growing grade one tumour. I wouldn't necessarily embark on anything else at that point, but they do need close endoscopic follow up to see if there is any evidence of local recurrence. And if that was the case, then they might need to go to something more either a wedge excision or a, or a gastrectomy. The type three have the worst prognosis. So they're the only ones really that people die from, although the mortality is still not as high as was once thought. But people do die of type three gastric nets. So you've got to be particularly careful with them. I think you need to try and resect them fully. If you don't, if you're not able to resect them fully endoscopically or if you're in any doubt, they probably should be going for a surgical resection. If you think they've been endoscopically resected, then close follow-up, probably another scope at six months and then maybe annually for a few years to see if there is any local recurrence and maybe some cross-sectional imaging as well to see if there's any metastatic disease.
2: And presumably they can develop new lesions.
1: The type 3s don't generally because there's no field defect. So often they don't. But the type 1s and 2s, their whole stomach is affected from the hypogastronemia and they inevitably will. So type 3 is the one I worry about most. The others I don't worry about so much. The type 2 is vanishingly rare. Um, Even patients with gastrinoma and MEN1, many of them don't have type 2 gastric nets. The tumours themselves, the nets in the stomach, often don't need any specific treatment if you can treat the gastrinoma. So if you can treat the gastrinoma and remove the gastrin that's causing the polyps to grow, then that may cause them to regress of their own accord. Occasionally, if they're large or symptomatic or bleeding or something like that, they may need treatment. But they're a reflection of the underlying disease rather than being the disease of, of their own accord. I say somatostatin wouldn't help
2: these to reduce the gastrin levels.
1: Yeah. So um, there are trials and there have been trials, mostly small, of um, somatostatin analogues in type one and type two gastric nets. They do. They are effective, but they're expensive and you'd have to use them all your life um, because there's this field defect. So a few patients are treated with them, but very few. Um, we also have done a trial, and this is more exciting, of gastrin receptor antagonists. So there's a gastrin blocker, if you like, or a gastrin receptor blocker, which is an oral medication still in trial stage. But we did a trial in type one gastric nets and showed that many of them would regress if you can block the effects of gastrin. And there's a trial currently underway in the States at the NIH on type 2 gastric nets. The results have not yet been published. But I wouldn't be surprised if it has a similar response. But going back to the type 1 gastric nets, which is what most people will see, I think the take-home message there is when they are small, certainly under a centimetre, and probably this, this is not the published guidance, but probably under 15 millimetres, to be honest, Um, their prognosis is excellent and we probably don't need to do anything with them at all. Apart from surveillance? Yes. So, well, I mean, again, there is a, so we're, there's an article that we're currently preparing. So we've been looking at our own data. So we've got about 70 patients that I've been following up, some of them for up to 15 years, And within that cohort, so people who've never had any treatment, all under 15 millimetres and mostly under 10 millimetres, there were literally three or four that changed a little bit over time, got a little bit bigger, or maybe changed from grade one to grade two, who haven't really had very much done, or maybe have had an endoscopic resection and have been fine. And in that whole time, we've found two cases of gastric adenocarcinoma. And is there a link then bec- between yeah. gastric adenocarcinoma and
2: NEDs? Well, is it gastric atrophy that's linked? It's links
1: the them? gastric atrophy that's the link. So, patients with pernicious anemia and autoimmune atrophic gastritis are also at higher risk of developing gastric adenocarcinoma. So, um, as you know, the BSG is now recommending three yearly surveillance for anybody who's got body atrophic gastritis with the main aim of finding whether they get gastric cancer. And that's for patients with H. pylori-induced or autoimmune atrophic gastritis. So the patients with gastric NETs are in that group who have an increased risk of gastric adenocarcinoma because of their atrophy. So that's paradoxical
2: then, Mark, isn't it? So we're doing surveillance for these patients, ignoring the NETs. What we're actually searching for are early gastric cancer. I
1: mean, I think it's important to look for those. Um, uh, But... So the the ENETS guidelines and conventional wisdom says that the patient should be having an annual surveillance endoscopy to look at the NETs and see how they're changing. Um, And that's what we do and that's what I have been doing for years but I've been recognizing that in my own practice I was scoping these people every year 18 months and very very few cases was I seeing anything happening. I was reassuring the patient of making their next appointment. So I thought, well, let's go back and look at it and see, is surveillance actually making a big difference to these patients? So in that time, none of these patients have developed any metastatic disease that I'm aware of. None of them have died of their nets. Very few have actually progressed, although one or two have gone and had an endoscopic resection because the polyps grown a bit. But again, they've been well thereafter. Um, And the only two patients in whom I think we've actually made a difference is those that we've detected early gastric cancer. But conventional wisdom says that the small ones you survey, and once they're a bit bigger, you think about removing them endoscopically. And the cutoff there is 10 millimetres, isn't it? That's the conventional cutoff. Um, I mean, the, the problem is with these is that many of them are multifocal. So a patient may have one polyp that's 12 or 13 millimetres, and they will have another 10 that are 5 millimetres or 7 millimetres. The issue is that the bigger the polyp gets, the higher the chance of lymph node metastasis. But the chance of lymph node metastasis in this disease is extremely low anyway, and the chance of death from it is, is vanishingly low. So one, th- one issue is having the confidence, if you like, to, to not intervene too much in these patients. So the paper that we recently um, published in Elementary Pharmacology and Therapeutics, we did a systematic review of this. So the quality of the evidence is not good, but we found, I think, 25 or so papers with over a thousand patients being described with type one gastric nets and what happened to them over prolonged follow up times. During that time, in those patients, over a 1,100, I think, nearly patients, there were five deaths, five tumour-related deaths. And they were all... What kind of time period? Oh, some of them up to 10 years follow up. And the ones that did die had extremely unusual features. So one of them was grade three. One of them was 60 millimetres in size. Uh, and the other three were metastatic diagnosis. And it's difficult to be absolutely precise as to whether or not they are type 1 lesions. You know, these could be type 3 nets that are arising sporadically in a patient who also happens to have pernicious anemia. But what the deaths that were reported in those patients were all very atypical to the patients that we normally see, the patients with you know, 20 or 30 polyps measuring up to a centimetre in size. That's what we typically see. And there were no deaths at all reported in that group. And I've been treating this disease now for getting on for 20 years. And as far as I'm aware, none of my patients have ever died of this, of type 1 gastric net. I had one patient who had a couple of really very large ones measuring three centimetres, four centimetres. And he had a total gastrectomy. Um, And he he was lost to follow up and has died. um, And I don't quite know what from. But that's the only case in that time that may have had an adverse outcome. And he was completely atypical.
2: Yes, a four in, centimeter NET, yeah. That's that's. Yeah. No, too this, this is contact.
1: not what this is not what as endoscopists or gastroenterologists we are typically seeing, and I, and I think you know in those rare patients where there is something very unusual, then you obviously need to think very carefully and not necessarily do the standard things. The question is, what should we be doing in the majority of patients that we see with very small lesions? Or, or medium-sized lesions, if you like, between a centimetre and two. It's very unusual to have more than two centimeter. So our, my current practice is that the ones under a centimetre, we, we watch. The ones that are just slightly over a centimetre, 12 millimetres or so, I tend to suggest, I, I explain pros and cons to them, but I have a very low threshold for saying, let's just watch. Once they're getting a bit bigger than that, I start to lose my bottle uh, and we, we do endoscopically resect them. Uh, but I'm wondering in, in many cases if that's to um, make me feel happier rather than to do anything beneficial to the patient, uh, because they've got this field change and they will have other polyps and they will develop further polyps. But there is a risk, it, Also, it's said, that they will develop lymph node metastases with that degree of or that size of tumor and so i think until we've got evidence to suggest that that's not the best thing to do i would recommend that they probably still should still be resected right and
2: and and yeah and and i guess your pathologists are the same as ours you you resect these bigger than average lesions and you never get complete reassurance because uh,
1: well you won't because they there is a field change there as well and they're often deeply submucosal so uh, it's very you know you're not going to get as you would with a a nice adenoma or something, or a a, a pathology report that says, you know, you've got good clearance from your diathermy margin. So that's why I think you just need to keep an eye on them. But if it's grade one, then your chances of running into problems soon is very, very, very low. And so you've got a bit of time to watch and wait and reevaluate it should be a a rarity that these patients need surgery. It, I think, is needed very occasionally, particularly these people with very big ones, or I've had a couple of people who've had multiple large ones. And it's, you know, if you've got 10 polyps that are 12 to 15 millimetres, I don't think it's appropriate to start trying to endoscopically resect all of those. So I've literally, over the years, had about four or five patients, maybe, who have gone for surgery. Um, and, in that time, but it's. And, and if you if you remove the G cells,
2: if you do a distal yeah. gastrectomy, you you remove the gastrin yeah. drive, don't you? Yeah,
1: yeah. So that's that we that used to be a, a quite a common treatment for this, which was an antrectomy. So yes, most of them, if you do an antrectomy, will regress. We had one patient who didn't respond to the gastrectomy, so to, to an antrectomy, and needed more of his stomach removing, uh, but most of them will regress it's just quite a big operation for what in many people is not a life-threatening disease and that's the difficulty here is working out which ones actually to treat and which ones not to over treat and i think there are so in this systematic review we did there were lots of patients with with sort of five millimeter type one nets that were having ESDs and all sorts of things done. And it's completely unnecessary. I think you're putting patients at risk from the complications of the procedure by doing an ESD on a five millimeter type one gastric net. Um, So certainly in the small ones, I would advocate nothing but watch closely if you're worried about it.
2: And if you do the biopsy a slightly larger thing, say eight, nine millimetres, they're not big enough for for justified removal. The biopsy will tell you what the um, uh, proliferation index is in that.
1: It will certainly give you a good indication. If you do, if it is a type one gastric net, the vast majority of them are grade one and a few of them will have a Q67 index up to about 5%. Very unusual to have anything higher than that. Certainly in the sub-centimetre lesions, biopsy sampling, I think, is sufficient. What I, I don't just biopsy one of them. I mean, there may only be one there, but I'm, I'm questioning it if that's the case. But usually in these people, when I assess them, what I do is I take some antral biopsies and ask the pathologist to do some G- um, in chemistry. I take at least four biopsies from the non-polyp Corpus mucosa and ask them to do immunohistochemistry for chromogranin and synaptophysin, and then I try and bi- biopsy at least four or five of the polyps, and I usually put it in the same pot. If there's anything that looks different or I'm, you know, particularly concerned about one of the polyps, I will send it separately. But if if they all look similar, I, I usually biopsy four or five of them, send them in a pot. One pot and, and ask them to assess those and give this key 67. And they, if all of them are similar and give a grade one histology, then I'm, I'm usually pretty happy with that because I'm not that worried about them anyway. If something came back and had a key 67 index of 20% or something, I would be much more concerned. And that sort of patient needs a careful think about what's going but on. But they're rare, aren't they? Do, how often would you see that? I've never seen one right <laughs> but so in this liter- in the literature so of those 1100 patients they reported two that had grade three pathology so if you did see that that should ring alarm bells and you should be thinking well what on earth' going on here just one I mean this is uh, the one thing that occasionally goes wrong is that if these polyps are small you sometimes biopsy them and you'll have a little bit of normal mucosa with it within the f- fragment. And obviously, the proliferation in normal gastric glands is quite high. So occasionally, a pathologist may mix up and see key 67 positive cells in the gland rather than in the tumour and give you a falsely high estimate. Um, but if you get it reviewed by somebody who's familiar with this type of tumour, they usually will be able to distinguish that. But we have had that once or twice.
2: So that's what you would do when you suspect this is an ordinary type 1 uh, and and I guess you'll do the B12 levels yeah, etc to confirm so, that this is an autoimmune atrophic yes, arthritis. They, they
1: don't always have pernicious anemia, so tests that I conventionally do in these patients, so I measure their full blood count obviously, to, they've often had that done beforehand and they're, they're often having their scope because somebody's found they're anemic in the first place. As well as their B12 level, I measure all their hematinics, including iron because and ferritin, because the lack of acid often makes them iron deficient as well. So sometimes they present with an iron deficiency anemia. In our cohort, thyroid dysfunction has been quite common in that group. Pernicious anemia and hypothyroidism go together quite a lot. So I measure their thyroid function, measure their parietal cell and intrinsic factor antibodies, their gastrin level and chromogranin A level. Chromigranin A being a biomarker of of all NETs, but it's not usually raised in this type of NET. And I usually measure calcium and sometimes PTH. So if there's any, if the patient's young, if there's anything to suggest it might be MEN one then I certainly do a a calcium and and probably PTH to look for parathyroid disease, which is the commonest manifestation of that. Um, But a, a set of um, of, of bloods is very helpful in working out what's going on. I mean, the key to all of this is knowing exactly what you're dealing with, because if you start with this approach and it's actually type three, you could end up in a bit of a mess. Most of the big hospitals in the in the UK have a neuroendocrine tumour multidisciplinary team. There's in the big centres, there's eight E-net centres of excellence. I think it is now in the UK might be even more than that, and so there's someone you can find in the UK and I'm sure that's true for your international audience as well who will have some experience of this uh, and can advise you in those cases where it is a bit more difficult to work out exactly what's going on.
2: So you do the you do blood tests when would you actually then resort to imaging you mentioned the the scans?
1: So type 3 always irrespective of size at least uh, contrast enhanced CT and possibly and probably actually a gallium scan in all type 3s. In type and all type 2s, the same because you're not so much looking at the NET, you're looking for gastrinoma. So they need a CT, they need probably a gallium scan, they may need an endoscopic ultrasound scan to look for these little uh, duodenal gastrinomas. So, universally in those. In a type 1, If it's typical and they're under a centimetre and they're grade one, I don't think they need any imaging. If there's anything unusual or there's several that are more than a centimetre, then I will have a relatively low threshold for doing a CT, Um, but often not more than that. If anything is really unusual, you know, a higher grade or very large polyp or something like that, um, yes, galliums and, and EUS and things as well. But EUS doesn't really tend to help that much. In I this. found that
2: too, Mark. I
1: found that I mean, too. It, so it'll tell you that this lesion is going, you know, through the mutts of mucosa, but you're going to know that anyway. Uh, and the the one thing it may tell you is about lymph nodes. Um, but again, it's not that good. We've just been looking at the literature for the role of EUS in, in stomach and duodenal NETs and it's it's very weak. There's very few studies, again, poor quality evidence. I mean the other question in which what we were looking at in this paper is how you should try and resect these. You know, is there any difference between EMR or ESD? From the review, we couldn't tell that one was any better than the other. EMR is done a lot more frequently. And certainly for the type ones, I think it's probably sufficient for Type 3s, it may be that ESD has a role in some patients, but all I can say at the moment is that the data is not strong enough to suggest that one or other is any better.
2: Well, the problem with both an ESD and an EMR for a type 3 NET would be that you don't normally get uh, muscularis propria. So that would be an argument for a wedge excision.
1: I I think in the type 3 ones, our our basic current practice is if it's under a centimetre or so, it's, it may be worth having a go at an endoscopic resection. If that doesn't work, it won't come out or somebody's worried about it or the pathologist says, you know, I, don't, I really don't think you've got this out, then go on with a wedge excision. If the tumour is a bit bigger than that, then maybe you should be going straight to a wedge excision and then you can get proper staging and then you can at least make sure that you've removed the thing and you could potentially also have a look and see if there were any lymph nodes. Um, while you're in there. And again, if theology comes back adverse, they can always go ahead and have a bigger operation subsequently. But the advantage of having a wedge, so if you have a wedge, you have basically have, once you've recovered from the surgery, you have no consequences from that long-term. Whereas if you're going to have a partial gastrectomy or a total gastrectomy, a roux on y reconstruction, you may well end up with long-term sequelae of the surgery. Uh, And
2: when you say adverse features in the histopathology specimen, that would include invasion into muscle propria, grade 2 or a grade 3?
1: If it's grade 3, you probably should be having a big big operation. Grade 2 is quite a big range from 3% to 20%. So often within that, we sort of subdivide it into low G2, high G2. So low G2 under perhaps 10% wouldn't be so worried about. If it came out uh, 18%, pathologist says, well, tumor at the resection margin. They also say there's a bit of lymphovascular invasion. I'm a bit worried about that. If on the other hand, it says tumor at the resection margin, key 67, 1%, no lymphovascular invasion, 12 millimeters. That's not too bad. And I would be happy there to watch and wait. So high grade is the most adverse feature here and within that you can also have neuroendocrine carcinoma so that's grade three but also poorly differentiated so if you have a grade three neck neuroendocrine carcinoma that is really worrisome
2: well i think that's a good point to finish on actually mark Uh, on a (laughs) a (laughs) contrary note great yeah no i think this will this will lift
1: the level of knowledge several notches in the gastro community my plea is is that we basically, you work out the type really carefully and that you involve somebody who is familiar with this yeah. rather than just as an endoscopist go and try removing it just because you can. You need to work out why you're doing it and whether you need to do it.
0: Now, thanks, Mark. We covered a lot of ground in these 30 minutes and got to the heart of the matter, I think, in a in a way that um, is not possible, really, by reading review articles. Now, you could almost do with a pen and paper, but on the website, friendsofendoscopy.org, I put down some bullet points for our listeners, as well as all the references, of course. Now, this concludes today's episodes. Thank you for listening. Hope that you tune in again in a couple of weeks time when we will be talking about the BSG campus event. Bye for now.